Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We recorded this episode you're about to hear on the 8th, and it was wrapped before we received some updates from the Lafitte trial. Now, I want to point out to you that neither Seton nor I do this podcast as a full-time job. Heck, it's really not an income for either of us. So we can't be at the trial every single day. Now, we have friends of the pod that will cover it for us. We have reporters we're friendly with who will join us on the podcast as well, and we'll aggregate what we can from great writers like John Monk. That's what I'm talking about first before we begin the recorded podcast is John Monk's article from the state paper talking about the opening statements in the trial. The opening statement from prosecutor Emily Limehouse lasted 45 minutes, and she disclosed that on the morning of June 7th, 2021, the same date when Murdoch's wife Maggie and son Paul were found murdered, a member of the Murdoch law firm had questioned Murdoch about missing legal fees. That's from John Monk, and was also part of the opening statement reported by others. Now, she did not identify the partner. She didn't elaborate in the partner's conversations. Really not sure how she's going to use that information in this trial, but it is the first time we've heard that the day of the murders, Alec was 100% sure things were unraveling as he was confronted about the money, and then later that night, his wife and son are murdered. Very interesting. Now, of course, Alec is not charged, as you are probably aware, eh, federally, with Lafitte right now. They're calling him an unindicted co-conspirator. But his name's all over this thing, mentioned dozens of times by both prosecution and defense attorneys. In her opening 45-minute statement, Limehouse told George Lafitte and Murdoch, we're among the most powerful people in Hampton County. As we know, you got the banker and the big-time attorney. The quote is, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not her original quote. <laughs> the government will show that Lafitte and Murdoch not only conspired to steal nearly $2 million, but they were engaged in a cover-up to conceal their misdeeds. That's what Limehouse said in her opener. She continued, Lafitte was Murdoch's point of contact and really served as Murdoch's personal banker. So the deal was Murdoch would bring Lafitte Big amounts of money from settlements, and Lafitte sets up conservatorships, and then Lafitte would help Murdoch steal money from those people. Lafitte would profit because he used the money in conservatorships Murdoch brought him to give himself big loans. This is all in Limehouse's opening statement. And she also added, why would Lafitte do all this for Murdoch? Quote, because Lafitte made hundreds of thousands of dollars from Murdoch. Now, we move to the defense's opening statement, and Lafitte's lawyer is Bart Daniel, and he went the way we all thought it was going to go as portraying Lafitte as a victim of Murdoch, and Daniel described Murdoch as a master manipulator, world-class con man, evil genius, patient and cunning and brilliant. And he went on to say that Lafitte has cooperated with the FBI and state law enforcement and said, quote, the measure of a man is when he's confronted is how he acts. Now, he says, hey, man, 
he was confronted. He went way out of his way to help find all these documents and help these agencies find where the money was to pay back the people who might have been ripped off. And Daniel says it's all about the fact that SLED did not like what Lafitte was telling them. So the quote is from Daniel, it did not fit their narrative and they rushed to indict him. And Lafitte, his attorney says, will tell you I made some mistakes. He's not going to not own up to those. But he says Lafitte was just merely a pawn in Murdoch's whole scheme and scam. And everybody trusted Alec Murdoch. What do you want him to do? In fact, he did take loans from these clients, but his quote is, perhaps it wasn't a good idea, but it certainly wasn't illegal. So we know how that's going to play out, how, what the whole point of the defense is going to be just from those first uh, opening arguments. Uh, and we will keep you updated. Seton's headed to the courthouse later this week, uh, weather permitting, because they might be canceling some of the trial later. Now on to our previously recorded episode. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Always grateful you decided to spend some time with us. And there's a lot of choices, and we're just very happy to be one of yours. And if you want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com. Directly to me, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Seton Tucker is here, of course, and the HBO Max documentary on the Murdoch mess debuted. And I thought, well, very well done. Seton. Oh my gosh, so well done and blew my mind. There was a lot of new information on there, great videos. I would highly recommend it for anyone who is interested in this story to watch it. And I've reached out to the HBO producers, directors, etc. If you guys hear this, feel free to contact me. I'd love to have you on. One thing we want to go to right away from the HBO special is the timeline. There'll be other things we'll discuss in future episodes, but today we want to do the Murdoch timeline, and we're also going to talk about the Russell Lafitte federal trial that started. But we're going to start with what Jim Griffin said, who is one of Alex's defense attorneys, about what happened June 7th, the approximately 12 hours or so before the murders. Right. So in this series, he says that Alex comes home from work at around 630, uh, that Paul and Alec rode around the property inspecting fields. He had dinner with Paul and Maggie. Mm -hmm. After dinner, Maggie left the house to go run dogs. Which I'm not exactly sure what run dogs means. Yeah. Does that I, mean you take them out of the dog pen and let them run? I, no. okay. I don't know. He says Paul left the house because he liked to be outside, but that Alec didn't necessarily know where he was. At this point, Alec laid down on the couch, watched TV, and fell asleep. And then at 9.01, Griffin says, Alec tries to call Maggie and Paul, but neither answer. He texted Maggie and told her that he would be right back. Then Griffin says from 9.03 to 9.21, Alec is on his phone on the way to see his mother. At 9.21... He calls his mom's house to ask the aide to let him in. Griffin says the aide sees Alex and says Alex is acting perfectly normal. And he stays about 20 minutes. At 9.41, he is back on the phone. And that at 10.01, there is video of Alec entering the house, which was still locked. 
which Griffin says shows there was no sign that Paul or Maggie had been back to the house from the time earlier in the evening when they originally left the house in Moselle. So after that, he gets in his car, Alec does, and drives to the dog kennels. Yes, where he discovers the bodies of Maggie and Paul and calls 911 at 10.07. And we can assume that a lot of the time he was on the phone was with Chris Wilson. We know that his defense team has said Chris Wilson was who he talked to on the way there and on the way back a couple of times. And there is an issue. It's that 845 or 844 conversation that Harpootlian has even said exist because he says it's a congenial conversation between Paul, Maggie, and Alec, right? Is that, uh, yes. Yes. And so, and also the prosecution has said that this video of a conversation exists, which would mean that either Griffin's timeline is messed up because this 844 video and the conversation that both sides say exist where Paul and Maggie and Alec are talking messes it up because in Griffin's timeline on the HBO thing, he says that Alec wakes up from his nap and does not talk to either of them again. They, next time he sees them, they're dead. And Creighton Waters said that at 9.06 p.m., Alec's car fires up and drives over to Almeida, which is the house, Alec's parents' house. And that is okay with the timeline because Griffin says from 9.03 to 9.21, he's on the phone to wait to see his mother. So he could be from 03 to 06 getting ready to start the car. I mean, that's, that's doable. Possible. The big, the big issue is that 8.44 video. There's a lot more on the HBO special, which we will get into in an, another episode. But let's stick with the timeline. And Alex attorneys have been saying, we don't have a timeline. We don't have a timeline. Finally, the prosecution gave a timeline for the murders. They say 8.32.10.06. Which also has that glitch of this alleged conversation at 44. Between the three, we go back to that again. So we're bringing in our legal analyst, former defense attorney and former prosecutor, John Snyder. Uh, John, let's get to it, and we'll get to Russell Lafitte in a minute, but we finally have a timeline now. I want you to explain to us the alibi defense, and as I understand it, the defense has to tell the prosecution what their alibi is before the actual trial even starts. The defense has to let the state know that they're going to provide an alibi defense. And, and the reason for that is then the state can, can look into the validity of the claims and or establish, then rebut. It's, it's kind of like a, the burden of proof shifts from one side to the other. So the state's got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Alec committed this. If the defense wants to prevent, present an alibi defense, they have to let the state know that so that the state can then kind of track and, and go down and see what, what, what there is to that defense and to see if there's any credibility to it. Because during opening arguments, you are absolutely going to get up and argue the, the shaggy defense of it wasn't me. Like <laughs> you're, you, are, you are going to be hammering on the fact 
it, it would be physically impossible for me to do the crime that you all are accusing me of because I was in Chuck E. Cheese when the murder occurred or whatever. You know, whatever, mm-hmm. however, however, it's going to go down. But, but you need to have that locked down during opening argument. And then the state has the ability during their opening argument to say, you're going to hear evidence and even in jury selection, you're going to hear evidence of uh, an alibi defense. Can you keep an open mind and understand that that's the, the defendant is putting that forward, but that the burden is on them to show that the defendant was somewhere else, not the burden on the state to show that he was somewhere else. Burden on the state is to show that he was there at the time of the murder and he committed the murder. It just seemed unusual to me that they actually broadened the, this time that the murders could have been committed. Do you find that strange? I don't find that strange. I mean, unless you're there and you see it in real time and you watch the projectile leave the gun and you then look down at your watch, there's always going to be a little bit of. of it's not against all doubt. It's beyond reasonable doubt. And so, you know, if you live in a rural area and it takes 40 minutes to get anywhere, saying the time of death happened within a 20 minute period is still sufficient to move forward, in my opinion. Well, there's definitely a lot of questions with this timeline because we know that there may be this video taken from Paul's phone at 844, which shows Maggie and Paul, or you can hear Maggie and Paul possibly having a conversation. And then in the HBO documentary, it doesn't all seem to match up. And so we'll do an episode on that timeline coming up very shortly. We're limited on this side to know what the actual evidence is. And so if you take reports and various things that people reported at different times, somebody might have had a misunderstanding of the facts before ballistics came back. And then ballistics were like, no, 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 the murder definitely took place around 9.05, not 9.45 or whatever. That's why the judge in the in, in federal court is saying, hey, you may be familiar with the case and you might you might have read articles and all that, but but can you make a decision based just on what you hear in this courtroom and and can you make a decision on the law based on the law that i give you with the facts that are provided to you by the defense and by the by the prosecution and apply the law to those facts that's that's why we ask those questions and that's what the judge is trying to do which is saying because there there is you know questions about timeline and 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 every case has that And so it's really key to get jurors that will ignore all that and then decide the case on its merits in the courtroom. Well, I think about a couple of things when I hear that you're you're asking, did you hear about it? And and can you put it all aside? Because just because one of uh, Alex's attorneys or the prosecution says they have this video or such and such happened, we don't know if that video is going to be admissible. We don't know the actual timestamp on that. We're just, and I also notice in these interviews with attorneys, they, they do this thing like, it was around nine o'clock. It was around 6.30. And then it'll be quoted in the paper or where else that says, he said it happened at 6.30, but then I'll go back and listen. You know, no, no, no. He said around and around could be a big span of time. And I'm sure that's done intentionally, right, John? Well, it's done intentionally because you don't, you, you don't want to get hooked 
on a cross examination, if if I said, okay, I, I come out and I say, well, it was around six thirty. Uh, well, Mr. Snyder, said six thirty. Yes, I did. Well, could it have been six thirty one? Well, maybe. Could it have been six twenty nine? Well, maybe. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, you can, you can see their own witness didn't even know exactly when it happened, yeah. <laughs> and so that's why you say around or yeah. you know. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Now we want to move to Russell Lafitte. He is in federal court, five-count federal indictment, bank fraud, wire fraud, misapplication of bank funds, conspiracy to commit bank fraud and wire fraud. They say he's teamed up with Alec, but Alec has not been charged at the federal level. Alec is at the state level, 90 counts, defrauding clients of $9 million. And as we're sitting here talking with John Snyder, John Monk, who's a great reporter, uh, tweeted uh, moments ago. Yes, he said that the jury has been selected, eight men and eight women, and that opening statements are set to begin at 1.15 p.m. On November 8th. And you plan on going back to the courthouse? Yes, I will be attending on Thursday. I'm trying to fit the work-life balance and back and forth. (laughs) It is a challenge. But you were there on November 7th, and that was... Pre-trial hearings. Okay. Which brings us to back to John Snyder. Thanks for hanging out there, John. Where do you want to start, Seton? Let's begin with the biggest bombshell is that Russell's attorneys would like to subpoena Alec Murdoch to testify. And Alec's attorneys have said, if he comes, he's just going to plead the fifth. So let's get John's perspective on this. It is a strategy of Lafitte's attorneys to basically... A part of their defense is to say, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. Everything that happened happened, you know, in the scope of his job, in the scope of his uh, conservatorship. And that if anybody did anything wrong, it was Alec Murdoch. Speaking of Alec pleading the fifth, how do you think this may impact the jury? What Lafitte is hoping is that he can call. Alec, to the, 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 the defense team can call him to the stand and ask him questions. And then he says, I, you know, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. And so then during closing arguments, they can argue to the jury that Lafitte wasn't the bad guy. Alec was. And so that's why they want to call him. Now, that's, the, you know, that's level one. Level two is. They honestly believe that Lafitte had no criminal intent ever, and they want Alec to come and say, I knew that Lafitte had no criminal intent, whatever, and that's why I asked him to do this, because he he didn't know he was doing anything wrong. And they're hoping... They're trying to build their defense. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it 
with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. ...of lack of intent, lack of illegality in, in what Lafitte did. It's, it's Russell's defense team that wants to call Alec. It's not the prosecutor, correct? Correct. And, and the prosecutor has said in, in their pretrial motions and arguments in, in court that they are not trying out Murdoch right now. They're trying Russell Lafitte. And so his attempt to bring in Alec is a distraction from the crimes that he's actually charged with committing. One of the things the judge mentioned is that he didn't want this to become a circus and they were here to try Russell Lafitte. He uses the analogy of a drag racer that, you know, if two people are drag racing down the street and one gets caught and the other one doesn't get caught, we're still here to try the person who was caught. That's right. But I, but the defense is arguing selective prosecution to say, hey, you're going after me, but you're not going after, and I think they said this directly in court, you know, Bank of America who did the same thing with funds in their bank accounts. And you're not, you know, you haven't indicted Alec Murdoch yet. And so maybe either unfair or premature to be going after our client here in, in this case. One thing I saw was or read was one of the things Lafitte's attorneys are trying to prove is the existence of a broader conspiracy. And why is that important? Where they want to position their client, and this is all just from from you know, reading what's what's been published, listening to commentary and and reading the pretrial briefs, they want to position Russell Lafitte as as a person who is literally just doing his job. He was either instructed to do this by his superiors and the board at the bank, or he was doing things that were approved by the courts in South Carolina. And so all of that is to show that he is not a bad actor. He's just a victim of circumstance. A pawn, right? He's just, he's just a pawn. He's, just a, he's an innocent patsy that was doing what he was told and therefore should not be prosecuted by the federal government. One of the things the judge mentioned is the potential of bringing Bank of America in and some of the other things that aren't directly related to this case could cause jury confusion. I think the judge is right on that particular issue. And in my own practice, I had a I had a federal jury trial where we really wanted to 
you know, let the jury know why our client was engaged in the behavior that they were engaged in. And the judge said that that doesn't matter. That's not one of the elements of the crime that your client's charged with. Therefore, we're not going to discuss it. And it's the same thing here. None of that's relevant. The only thing that's relevant are the the six things that the the federal government has to prove. If they can prove those six things beyond a reasonable doubt, you're guilty. And at the same time, you're able to present a defense. And the defense can't be, well, you should go after these other people. The defense should be, I didn't commit this crime, or it wasn't a it wasn't a criminal act when I borrowed money from a conservator because South Carolina law allows that. And it wasn't a criminal act for us to repay that because we repaid it with interest better than what a CD gets or, or whatever, whatever their argument's going to be. That's where the, the court's going to really constrict the defense. And the defense will be down to the very elements of the crime charged, not you know, a mini trial of Alec Murdaugh and his all, all the things he's accused of doing in state court. So it's like when you tell you, you say your, your kid uh, skipped school and he's like, oh, yeah, well, Billy skipped school, too. That's not part of the trial. You're the one who skipped school, kid. And that's actually a horrible defense, because <laughs> by, by, by making that argument, you are admitting that you, too, skipped school without any justification. Right. Um, right. So so. These are issues to raise at pretrial. These are issues that you would want to have in your in your your appellate record if, if a conviction occurs. But I do think that the judge is right in based on the case law cited in in the briefs. The judge is right to constrict the defense to the defense of the actual things charged, not not the defense of other people do bad things. <laughs> Well, it was really shocking to me to hear that it was it is legal to lend yourself money out of a trust account. I just didn't know that. And I was I mean, that to me was a bombshell. That's specific to South Carolina. And generally, general kind of if you are somebody's fiduciary, it is generally a bad idea to do that. But it was approved by the probate court. And so that may be the normal course of business in that area. And so Lafitte, I do think, has justification in arguing that against some of these against some of the elements of the crimes that he's charged with here in federal court. Prosecutors allege that Lafitte took eight loans to himself for three hundred fifty five thousand from the conservatorship of Hannah Plyer. The Plyer girls, mother and brother, died in an accident 17 years ago. And Lafitte made loans to himself. He allegedly paid back Hannah's account with fees. But here's the problem. They're saying he paid back the account with fees he fraudulently obtained from other clients. That's what they're claiming. He's also accused of giving Murdoch a million dollars in unsecured loans from Hannah Plyer account. And Limehouse did, as you said, the... The prosecution said and agreed that it's not against the law for bankers to loan money from conservatorships without court approval, even, which was interesting. The defense would like to call the probate judge, Judge Odom, to kind of clarify some of these things. 
What was your take on this? My, my take on that is Lafitte is is making a, a valid defense of a claim of under color of law, meaning he's not a lawyer, he's not a he's not a judge. He went to the court and asked them if this was okay, and the court said it is okay, and all of a sudden he's now been federally indicted. That that I think is a is a defense and a valid defense to be presented in federal court. It, it's it's basically saying I didn't have any criminal intent in my action, and I didn't act with negligent disregards to the to the victims in this case. I did what the courts allow and what the courts let me do. And so so the big I think the, the best defense that he's got comes down to the, the his mental intent, his his criminal mind or in you know the, the old Latin word is the mens rea. Did he intend to commit a crime when he took the money out and and then subsequently repaid it? There is a YouTube video interview that's out by Sarah Allen Davenport with Russell Lafitte. And we're going to have Sarah on in an upcoming episode to discuss that interview. And in the video, Russell Lafitte claims he was close with the Plyler girls or women, and he felt like almost a second dad to them in a way. And what he did when he took those loans is he paid them back at a rate that was much higher than they would have gotten if it was in some sort of other savings account, et cetera. That is his claim to how that all worked out. And it was unusual that this came out the, you know, f- several days before his federal cor- court hearing was set to start. The video, yeah. So that video, I think, goes to the heart of what the defense will be once the trial begins is that. Lafitte, in his mind, had authority and was actually doing a good thing on behalf of these particular uh, victims in in these cases. Now, that's what the jury will decide. And so if if the jury finds that argument credible, that might be enough to overcome the the burden that the federal government has to prove that he, he intended to steal money. Uh, but that doesn't that, that doesn't alleviate some of the other charges he's facing. Another thing brought up was the good character defense. What is that, John? So what the U.S. Attorney's Office here is saying, Lafitte can't just unsolicited present evidence and testimony of what a what a swell guy he is and what a nice guy he is. And, and what they said in their in their brief and they argued was to say the only way that evidence of your character comes in on an evidence basis uh, during during the trial, not during the sentencing, but during the trial, is if they attack his character or say that his activity was you can you can look at his character as an element of the crime, and so there. What they're what they're basically doing here is is telling the making a motion to kind of remind the court that character mm. evidence is only admissible if character is attacked. And again, it goes back to the the what the judge says, which is all that's going to happen in my courtroom 
is the 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 United States is going to present evidence that attaches to the elements of the crimes, and the defendant is going to defend against those charges that the U.S. Attorney's Office has brought forth. You, it's not going to get into a well, gosh, Russell's just a great guy, and and there's no way Russell could have done some could have done something like this. It, instead, it's if the government says Russell always does bad things like this, then then you can present the defense of good character to say, no, Russell's reputation in the community is very positive and and not consistent with doing bad things. I have a question that popped into my head about this now. We've talked about how in a murder trial, there we've always assumed, a lot of us have assumed, that there had to be a motive. And we've, you've told us that a motive isn't needed in the murder trial. Is that similar to what is happening here? Does there Absolutely. have to be? That's, that's okay. a great analogy because it, it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter if you're a great gal or great guy if you did the six things that the government says you did and those are the six elements of the crime you are then guilty of the crime and so so it's like you couldn't like you couldn't say hey i stole that money because uh i was helping them out that that's not a defense that would that would not be a de- that would not be it would it wouldn't be a defense, but it would speak to intent, and criminal intent is an element of the crime. Okay, so, all right. That's so, criminal intent is different than motive. So if if I walk into um, if I walk into your garage refrigerator, and I'm accused of of larceny for stealing from the refrigerator. But I say, no, 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 I, you know, I saw that you had White Claw in there and I was embarrassed for you. (laughs) So I brought, I brought some real, real beer for you to drink. That would be a defense because of my, my mental state wasn't to steal White Claw. It was to actually Uh provide a better drinking experience for you. That is a, okay. You you spoke my language there. (laughs) (laughs) We know now that the jury has been selected, and during the pretrial hearing, the judge was going to question jurors on their knowledge of this case based on what they have listened to and read, including podcasts in the initial questionnaire. Our podcast was one of the things they mentioned, and the judge was not going to preclude someone from being a juror if they had knowledge of this case. John, explain this. Basically, the judge is is not saying you have to be ignorant of what's going on. You just have to be undecided about what the results will be. And so so what a judge and so federal court, state court do jury selection differently. And and even some states do it differently. But in what we typically see on TV is, you know, during during the high drama of, of legal film and television is is each side gets to pick their their jury and they get to ask a bunch of questions and and to me that's maybe the best part of practicing you know litigation is is jury selection i that's that's my favorite part of doing a jury trial 
And so that's when you really get to you get to know your jurors, you get to establish rapport with them, you get to put forward your theories of the case, you get to attack the other side's case or their theories. And so in federal court, all that goes out the window and the oh. judge doesn't. And so what, what the judge will say, all right, here are the questions I'm going to ask. I might ask some others. And then when I'm done with those jurors, you guys each get two minutes with the, the jury, the jurors that I have left. The reason mm. that's done is for judicial efficiency, because jury selection can take it can take a week. It can take two weeks, depending on the, the nature of the charges. In this particular case, the judge is saying, hey, there's no way in the world you don't know this name by now. If you if you read a newspaper or watch television or you live here, which which the jury, the jury, the jury pool does live in that area. And so he's not saying you're disqualified if you've ever read anything. He's saying you're disqualified if after hearing all the evidence and only considering the things presented in court, can you reach a verdict? And that's that's the standard. It's not you have to be vacuous and have no, you know, no brain in your head. It just means you have to be willing to listen to the what's presented in court, not not what we say on a podcast, not what somebody reports in in, in the news. Why was jury selection closed to the general public? Probably a couple reasons. In state court, you, it's it's jury selection is done in, in you know in public, but in federal court, it may be this particular judge has felt like you're you're getting into some pretty deep personal beliefs, deep personal opinions, and so they're keeping the media out of this so that um, if you find out that T- Tina Jane actually is a, is an active Wiccan. Like you, you don't want somebody running out of the courtroom being like, "There's a Wiccan on the jury," you know, whatever. Uh, you know, again, extreme, extreme example, but, but it's to, it's to proffer and get the best and most truthful um, information out of the jurors because you're sitting in that box, you're self-conscious, and 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 group dynamics take over. You know, sociology is really a play in these things where. You know, if 11 people all say one thing, will you say the same thing just to get along or will you be able to kind of stand up for your own personal belief? All right, Johnny. Thank you, John Snyder, our legal analyst off and running. Seton, we have to go back to a few episodes ago and straighten something out we talked about. Yes, we were talking about Alec getting approval to use his 401k for some legal fees and we questioned the $900,000 amount seemed pretty low to us, but since then it's been brought to our attention by a couple of people, and we appreciate it, that it was actually a higher amount that included the penalty he took out for early withdrawal as well as legal fees. So thanks to all of you who reached out and said, hey, dummies, this is what happened. We do appreciate it when you reach out and straighten us out. We need it sometimes. And other times you just give us really great theories that you want us to discuss. If you want to reach out, Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. We've got Murdoch podcast on Facebook and Murdoch podcast.com. We hope you will follow and share and rate and review the episode. And we will talk soon.
Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. 25 years ago, Vega Pro Press disrupted the plumbing industry. Today, we're all about making big construction projects safer and keeping them on schedule. That's why we make Vega fittings in McPherson, Kansas, and ship our press systems out of massive distribution centers in Reno, Nevada, and McDonough, Georgia, to ensure that across the U.S., high rises will always have hot water and steel mills stay up and running 24 7. Vega Pro Press, Mega Press, Pure Flow. The press fittings you need when you need them. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.